the face of evil. After 9-11, when the horror and trauma had subsided, Americans found themselves asking what had happened and why. Was it a disaster, a tragedy, a crime, an act of war? It didn't seem to fit into the pre-existing paradigms, and why had it happened? The question most asked about Al-Qaeda was, why do they hate us? In the wake of those events, an American thinker, Lee Harris, wrote a book called Civilization and Its Enemies. It was among the th most thought-provoking responses of the decade. The reason for the questions and the failure to find answers, said Harris, was that we in the West had forgotten the concept of an enemy. Liberal democratic politics and market economics create a certain kind of society, a certain way of thinking, and a characteristic type of personality. At their heart is the concept of the rational actor, the person who judges acts by their consequences and chooses the maximal option. He or she believes that for every problem there's a solution, for every conflict a resolution. The way to achieve it is sit down, negotiate, and do on balance what is the best for all. In such a world, there are no enemies, merely conflicts of interest. An enemy, says Harris, is simply a friend we haven't done enough for yet. In the real world, though, not everyone is a liberal democrat. An enemy is someone who is willing to die in order to kill you. And while it's true that the enemy always hates us for a reason, it's his reason, not ours. He sees a different world from ours, and in that world we are the enemy. Why do they hate us, answers Harris? Because we are their enemy. Now, whatever the rights and wrongs of Harris's specifics, the general point is surely true and profound. We can become mind-blind, thinking that the way we, our society, our culture, our civilization see things is the only way. At least that's the way everyone would choose if given the chance. Only a complete failure to understand the history of ideas can explain this error, and it's a dangerous one. When Montezuma, ruler of the Aztecs, met Cortes, leader of the Spanish expedition in 1520, he assumed that he was meeting a civilized man from a civilized nation. That mistake cost him his life, and within a year there was no Aztec civilization anymore. Not everyone sees the world we do in it. As Richard Weaver once said, the trouble with humanity is that it forgets to read the minutes of the last meeting. This explains the significance of the unusual command at the end of this week's parasha. The Israelites had escaped the seemingly inexorable danger of the chariots of the Egyptian army, the military high-tech of its day. Miraculously, the sea divided, the Israelites crossed, and the Egyptians, their chariot wheels caught in the mud, were unable either to advance or retreat and were caught by the returning tide. The Israelites sang a song and finally seemed to be free when something untoward and unexpected happened. They were attacked by a new enemy, the Amalekites, a nomadic group living in the desert. Moses instructed Joshua to lead the people in battle. They fought and won. But the Torah makes it clear this was no ordinary battle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll is something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it Hashem Nisi, the Lord is my banner. He said, the Lord hand is on the Lord's throne, the Lord 
will be at war with Amalek for all generations. Now, that's a very strange statement, and it stands in marked contrast to the way the terrorist speaks about the Egyptians. Don't forget the Amalekites attacked Israel during the lifetime of Moses just once. The Egyptians oppressed the Israelites over an extended period, oppressing and enslaving them, and starting a slow genocide by killing every male Israelite child. The whole thrust of the narrative should suggest that if any nation would become the symbol of evil, it was Egypt. But actually the opposite turns out to be true. In Dvarim, the Torah states, Don't abhor, don't hate an Egyptian, because you were a stranger in his land. And shortly thereafter, Moses repeats the command about the Amalekites, adding a significant detail. Zechor, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were Aeviagea, weary and worn out. They met you on the journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Now, we're commanded not to hate Egypt, but never to forget Amalek. What's the difference? Probably the simplest answer is to recall a famous statement of the rabbis in Pirkei Avot, in the Ethics of the Fathers. They say, if love depends on a specific cause, when the cause ends, so does the love. But if the love doesn't depend on a specific cause, then it never ends. And I think the same applies to hate. When hate depends on a specific cause, it ends once the cause disappears. But Sinat chinam, causeless, baseless hate, lasts forever. The Egyptians suppressed the Israelites because they had a reason. Pharaoh said, they're becoming ravatsumimenu, too numerous and strong for us. Their hate, in other words, came from fear. It wasn't irrational. The Egyptians had been attacked and conquered before by a foreign group known as the Hyksos, and the memory of that period was still acute and painful. But the Amalekites weren't being threatened by the Israelites at all. They were attacking a people who were weary and worn out, specifically those who were lagging behind. In other words, the Isra Egyptians feared the Israelites because they were strong. The Amalekites attacked the Israelites because they were weak. In today's terminology, the Egyptians were rational actors. The Amalekites weren't. With rational actors, there can be negotiated peace. People engaged in conflict eventually realize that they're not only destroying their enemies, they're destroying themselves. That's what Pharaoh's advised him, uh, advisors said to him after seven plagues. You know, they said, do you not realize, ki Mitzrayim, that Egypt is ruined? There comes a point at which rational actors understand that the pursuit of self-interest has become self-destructive, and they learn to cooperate. It isn't so, though, with non-rational actors. Emil Fackenheim, one of the great post-Holocaust theologians, noted that towards the end of the Second World War, the Germans diverted trains carrying supplies to their own army in order to transport Jews to the extermination camps. So driven were they by hate that they were prepared to put their own victory at risk in order to carry out the systematic murder of the Jews of Europe. This was, he said, evil for evil's sake. The Amalekites function in Jewish memory as the enemy, in Lee Harris's sense. Jewish law, however, specifies two completely different forms of action in relation to the Amalekites, and it's important to distinguish them. 
First is the physical command to wage war against them. That's what Shmuel told Saul to do, a command he failed fully to fulfill. Now, does this command still apply today? The unequivocal answer given by Nachum, Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich is no. On the basis that Maimonides ruled the command to destroy the Amalekites only applied if they refused to make peace and accept the Noahide laws. He further stated that the command was no longer applicable since Sennacherib the Assyrian had transported and resettled the nations he conquered so that it was no longer possible to identify the ethnicity of any of the original nations against whom the Israelites were commanded to fight. He also said in the Guide for the Perplexed that the command only applies to people of specific biological descent. It isn't to be applied in general to enemies or haters of the Jewish people, so the command to wage war against the Amalekites no longer applies. But there is a quite different command, Zachor, to remember, don't forget. And that, applied to Amalek, we still fulfill annually by reading the passage about the Amalekites as it appears in Dvarim on Shabbat Zachor, the Shabbos before Purim. Uh, of, for obvious reasons, because Haman was an Agagite, assumed to be a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. So here, Amalek has become a symbol rather than reality. By dividing the response in this way, Judaism marks a clear distinction between an ancient enemy who no longer exists and the evil the enemy embodied, which can break out again at any time in any place. It's easy at times of peace to forget the evil that lies just beneath the surface of the human heart. Never was this truer than in the past three centuries. The birth of enlightenment, toleration, emancipation, liberalism, and human rights persuaded many Jews among them that collective evil was as extinct as the Amalekites. Evil was then, not now. That age eventually begat nationalism, fascism, communism, two world wars, some of the most brutal tyrannies ever known, and the worst crime of man against man. Today, the great danger is terror. Here, the words of Princeton political philosopher Michael Walzer are particularly apt. Wherever we see terrorism, he says, we should look for tyranny of oppression. The terrorists aim to rule, and murder is their method. They have their own internal police death squads, disappearances. They begin by killing or intimidating those comrades who stand in their way, and they proceed to do the same if they can among the people they claim to represent. If terrorists are successful, they rule tyrannically, and their people bear, without consent, the costs of the terrorist rule. Evil never dies, and like liberty, it demands constant vigilance. We're commanded to remember, not for the sake of the past, but for the sake of the future, and not for revenge, but the opposite, a world free of revenge and other forms of violence. Lee Harris began Civilization and Its Enemies with the words, the subject of this book is forgetfulness. And it ends with the question, can the West overcome the forgetfulness that is the nemesis of every successful civilization? That's why we're commanded to remember and never forget Amalek, not because the historic people still exist, but because a society of rational actors can sometimes believe that the world is full of rational actors with whom we can negotiate peace.
it isn't always so. Rally was a biblical message so relevant to the future of the West and of freedom itself. Peace is possible, implies Moses, even with an Egypt that enslaved and tried to destroy us. But peace is not possible with those who attack people they see as weak and who deny their own people the freedom for which they claim to be fighting. Freedom depends on our ability to remember and wherever necessary confront the eternal gang of ruthless men, the face of Amalek throughout history.